Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed To Your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So this week, Nehemiah, or at least uh, the latter chunk of Nehemiah, and then into First John, um, we pick up uh, as you started your reading this week with, um, once again, opposition to whatever the leader is doing, and in this case, it, it's Nehemiah in the story. Uh, they're surrounding um, people coming from what well, seems like different countries um, or different people groups around them. They're just talking trash um, and uh, decide ultimately to to try to attack uh, Israel or Jerusalem, and and the morale of the Israelite seems low and all these kind of things. So so Nehemiah uh, ends up. Um, I think st- stirring up uh, the kind of spirits of them to to say, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome uh, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. It feels like a, um, what's its name? Braveheart. William, William Wallace. Wallace. It feels like it's William <laughs> Wallace moment uh, for Nehemiah and he puts up guards and um, yeah, it's, it's it's stirring them to to care about their their families, their brothers and sisters. I think we get a great example in this section too of what it looks like to make wise plans while also trusting the Lord. Nehemiah did get people to guard the wall and rally the troops and everything like that, but also declared that it was God who was going to triumph. And so for us as believers, we can walk forward in making wise plans, but also trusting God to bring about our desired outcome. And so they do work hard and they are ready to defend themselves. Um, Though the description, as you kind of read through it, you're like, man, like they're they're sleeping in the clothes that they're wearing all day. They're they, they are working themselves to the bone, for better or for worse. They're they're certainly um, trying to get this done. Yeah, definitely was happening slower probably than they wanted with a weapon in one hand and work in the other. But they trusted that God would fight for them. Um, but. Uh, at the same time, uh, they are still under sort of the, the Persian rule, which included um, um, tribute and things like that, taxes. Uh, and we find out some of the people uh, are getting pretty cash-strapped, and there's lenders who are taking advantage of it. And all sorts of things are um, happening, extortion, things like that. And Nehemiah calls out, particularly the the nobles, the leaders in this place that are um, doing this and, and put an end to the practice. And they, guess what? They, they get called out, and they follow through, which is always nice, too. We haven't always seen that in Israel's history. It's sort of another kind of good moment for the people. Yeah, we see Nehemiah not just trying to get the wall built, but working for the restoration of the law and advocating that the weak and the marginalized would also find justice in Jerusalem. Yep. Um, and we find out even Nehemiah being like, look, I, I could have lived lavishly. Like other governors have done this in the past, but um, he's like, I, I chose to, to live like like my fellow Israelites. And um, I don't I don't live lavishly. I live in such a way that um, it's reflective of my brothers and sisters, which certainly have some very uh, Jesus overtones to what Nehemiah is saying here. Yeah, it makes me think of Philippians 2.8, talking about how Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, taking on the on the form of a man. And so we see Jesus is the better Nehemiah in this story for sure. Yeah, and Nehemiah's opponents keep wanting to meet with him, but Nehemiah's not kind of, kind of falling for um, this that feels like a trap. And um, uh, even, they even threat to, to let the empire know that Nehemiah wants to be king, um, which would cause the empire uh, in Persia to come along and, and snuff out Nehemiah. But he's Nehemiah knows they're just lies. And, and at some point, he even seeks a prophet to try to get some clarity. But um, the, the prophet ends up um, kind of falsely prophesying. And Nehemiah kind of realizes that too, that his opponents must have paid him. Um, and, and Nehemiah desires just to be obedient. Like the prophet's, prophet's telling him to go into the temple and do this kind of things. But Nehemiah knows only the priest can go into the temple. And it's like he's, he's being obedient to what he's called to do. So this is a great example of how 
the godly deal with fear. It doesn't mean Nehemiah wasn't afraid here, but let's look at what he did. He held fast to the instruction that God gave him, and then he asked God for strength. He continued to walk forward and trust even in the midst of fear, obeying God. Yep. And the wall gets done. Um, mm. And I, I forget how many years have passed uh, in the storyline, but the wall does get finished and the surrounding countries, all these people that have been mocking him are, are really intimidated. Um, and yet there's, we also hear a random statement that some of the families are connected to one of the outsiders, um, and are trying to vouch for him. And, uh, but they, they finish the walls and, um, only when the, the sun is really hot are the gates open, but they're shut other times. And so I'm um, not exactly sure how shut these gates are and, and how welcoming Jerusalem is at this moment. But um, once again, um, it'd be reading beyond probably what's in the text to try to figure that out. One of the cool things to think about here is the way that God accomplishes his work so that all of the glory goes to him and not just to Israel, but also to all the nations that he had there not been hecklers and foreigners watching all of this go on, they would not have seen and been intimidated by God and the work that he does to accomplish these things. So um, even though it seemed like everything was working against Nehemiah to get this wall built, we see God coming through and glorifying his name among so many people because of the circumstances behind the rebuilding of the wall. And then we get, as is the rhythm of this book, we get another list of returned exiles, um, as well as all the gifts and collections that they brought with them. Uh, and then after that, we get Ezra reading off the law. Yeah, we see God leaving a remnant just like he promised. And while it looks like a list of names to us, it's also a testimony to the faithfulness and, and trueness of what God promises. Yeah. And so as we read the law, um, it's, it's something that, um, to this day, if you even go to a synagogue, they will read through the Torah every year. Um, even in Jesus's time, they, they had started building in the practice basically that of, of what Ezra's doing here as a routine, uh, for what the, what the people of God should, should stay central to the word of God. I appreciate that all the people, the men and the women are gathered together to receive this word of the Lord. And then they ensure that everyone understands it. They want to restore right and honorable worship to God. And that wasn't just set aside for the priests, but it was that everyone could understand. And I love that they read the law and, um, and so Ezra proclaims it. And, and, and in a lot of ways, they probably rightfully recognize their sin. They're grieving. They're, they're sad over their sin because the law has exposed it. But then Ezra and Nehemiah and these priests come along and they're like, look, this, this is not a moment for grieving, actually. Like this day is holy unto the Lord. It is set apart for the Lord. And, and this is a day we should celebrate. And in some ways, because they're the remnant, like, yes. We broke God's covenant, but we are here and God has brought us back to this place. Like this is a moment to celebrate that God is faithful, even when we're faithless. So, so come on, let's, let's celebrate the goodness of our God. Yeah. Holy moments, of course, can be somber at times, but they can also be celebratory. Yeah. And then the uh, Feast of Booths is celebrated, which uh, we saw at the very beginning. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, celebrates the Feast of Booths at sort of the beginning of the book. And then we see it here, um, which is interesting because uh, it's a celebration of um, when Israel was nomadic in the desert with their nomadic God and they're celebrating the dedication of the temple. But uh, I have my own thoughts on that. that I've already expressed. So, um, yeah. It's it's cool that they celebrated in this way, though. They finished the wall. They don't have homes, and they're anticipating the future home to come. And they d may not know exactly what that means, but we do now. 
and the people come and confess their sins, uh, which is great. Uh, even though, um, as we just said, that the celebration was was or the the reading involved celebration, uh, but there was recognition of sins, and they do own it. Um, and then the Levites come and have this long sort of um, blessing of the Lord, which goes into the summary of everything from Egypt all the way up to Ezra. Uh, it's quite a long section that you guys had to read through. Um, and and what's interesting is they talk through like years of all their failings. But then at the very end, they make a dedication. And so are we sure that's a good idea? I mean, Israel has done this before. And it's funny to, to kind of recount, here's all the ways we have been unfaithful in the past. But let's sign the statement to say we're not going to do that anymore. And it's like, mm, I don't know about this. I like the way it seems <laughs> like they've internalized this. And you're right. They don't, they don't uphold the covenant. But they remember, they told the story of how they were formed and of God's readiness to forgive and God's steadfast love and remembered their own faithlessness and, and their lack of forgiveness. And they acknowledged that that all the hard things that happened to them was because of their sins. And they did this in order to renew the covenant with God. And of course, we know that God is the only one who can faithfully uphold this covenant and he did through Christ. But this is part of our story too, for those of us who are grafted into this family through Christ. Yeah. And, and so they come along, there's stipulations that they try to agree to, whether it's Sabbath and things like that. But um, we'll see how long that lasts. I know we didn't get to finish the book this week, but by the last chapter, uh, there's a little bit of a, a finale to how we should feel about this covenant keeping. Yeah, they definitely make some really specific commitments here. Uh, and then um, they've got to find a way to resettle Jerusalem as a city. And so some of the leaders move back in by choice. Some move in uh, with lots, uh, by casting lots. Uh, but um, you got to imagine, this is a city that's been pretty destroyed. It's it's pretty much probably rubble at this point. Um, it's not exactly a, a high desire area to move back into. It's going to take a lot more work than rebuilding a, a village that might have been less ransacked. And so, yeah. um, but they, they've, they've desired to rebuild the city and they're just going to have to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's logistical issues to manage as well. Uh, but the villages get settled as well. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, priests and Levites, um, we, we kind of get this long list almost towards the end of the book here, um, and uh, which is important. Once again, if you're rebuilding the temple, you got to build, you got to figure out the workers that God has set apart uh, these workers to um, work in the temple themselves. Mm-hmm. And they dedicate the wall. That's a good thing. Yeah, you it's helpful to have priests to do stuff like this. And so they purify themselves, the priests do, and then they purify the people, they purify the walls, they purify the gates. They go through this whole purification process. They do lots of singing. Yeah, there's a lot of singing. And everyone offers sacrifice. Everybody's rejoicing. Every uh, As the text would almost basically say, man, woman, and child are there to do this. Um, yeah, it's a big celebration, which mm-hmm. is great. It's so loud that people can even hear the celebration from far away, yeah. which is really, really cool. All right, let's jump to First John, uh, starting up uh, halfway through chapter two this past week, and so um, John gets into sort of the the dichotomy of of love for the world versus love for God, and he really paints it as sort of this um, when, when we have desire, these sort of like either physical desires, the desires of the flesh, like we we want to satisfy our physical wants or maybe even the goods and comforts and and wanting things coveting or even just general self-satisfaction that that comes with things like pride. He says like those things ultimately compete with the love of God. It's not like we can hundred percent love God and hundred percent love other things. I think John is pointing out and look like you're, you're, you, those things have to compete. It'd be disordered desires to think you can hold those things equally. Um, and if you're loving the things of this world, it, it can't, it'll keep you from loving and desiring God. 
Yeah, it's really easy to engage in things of the world and become complacent with our love for God or start to set the standard or the bar at what those around us, even Christians, are doing instead of looking to God and asking to be filled with the true love of God and in that the things of of earth, uh, by the grace of God, will become less desirable for us. Yeah, and then John speaks of antichrists, not just a singular antichrist, but anyone who denies Jesus as an antichrist. The same way that uh, I think Peter, uh, when he objects to to Jesus's mission, uh, gets identified as Satan as adversary. I think um, anybody that's uh, actively denying Christ, according to John, is um, an antichrist, and so. There's a group of people that have left this community and actively denying it. And John's being clear about this, that this group was never really amongst you. Like they were, they've only proven by their abandonment that they never really were pro Christ or for Christ for Christ or believed Christ. And, and, um, but then he turns to John sort of addresses the community's writing to saying, but, but you, you are chosen to him. So like persevere, you, that, that would be a hallmark of, of your faith. And if the word has taken root in you, then, then you do abide in the father and abide in the son. Like, and he goes that my friends is eternal life. It's not, um, sometimes we think of eternal life as like what we'll get after we die and sort of heaven. Um, but, but John, amongst others uh, mm-hmm. in the New Testament, like eternal life can be can, can be had now. Like if you are abiding in the Father and the Father's abiding in you, like that's eternal life now. Um, and it's not a secret Gnostic teaching, which John's trying to drive home to at the end. Like John wants you to know, like this is for all who believe. This isn't secret, secret insider knowledge. Like eternal life can be yours now. Abide in the Father. And this sort of Gnostic teaching, while we don't call it Gnosticism, is fairly common in our culture as well, but it just comes with different language that sounds a lot like follow your heart or do what you feel is right or be true to yourself. And John John reminds them and us that we need to know that our truth is in Christ and that we have all knowledge we need through Scripture and the Holy Spirit, not through some sort of inner awakening. Yep. And then... Um John starts speaking in a way that uh, at times feels not unlike James. Uh, as we talked about in James, there's that, 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 um, not dichotomy, but that wrestling through, uh, where does obedience fit in? Where does, where does living out your faith fit in with, um, faith and belief? And, um, John sort of goes, okay, like you really want to know those who really love Jesus? Like they, they live it out. They show it. They, they live righteously. They, they love others. The test, the test of whether to love God is really how much you really do love other people. And just to paraphrase, um, one of the more confusing sentences of like, um, those who, who love like don't sin, it, it almost feels that way. But, uh, I think Eugene Peterson put it this way that no one who lives deeply in Christ makes a practice of sin. None of those who do practice sin, uh, have taken a good look at Christ. They've got him all backwards and making sure that we don't take, um, perfectionism, uh, as if, um, that's the standard because it's, it's a little bit odd in, in terms of how we've translated that verse in English. But, um, that idea that, um, that we would, um, love, which becomes sort of the central from this point on. This contrast of those who are born of God and those who are children of the devil is really played out in our practice of righteousness versus our practice of unrepentant sin. And it's important to note that this sin is unrepentant. And really, this idea of living out righteousness starts and ends with knowing and understanding the love of God and what it means to be adopted 
as God's children and, and co-heirs with Christ like we read about in Romans 8 or in Ephesians. And so when we are His, we are going to live out the character traits that God and Christ exemplified to us. And then John reminds him, look, this is the original message that I've said to you. Like, you've heard this all along, that we love each other. Um, he's, he's basically saying, like, you, the way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we suddenly have love for our brothers and sisters that may not have been there before. And that's the litmus test. Like Christ died for us to, and to love in truth is to be generous to a brother in need is, is one of the ways that sort of John puts it. Um, he's continuing to intertwine. Yes. This belief and uh, love and truth and all these ideas. And at times I think we, we create a, once again, a false dichotomy between sometimes truth and love. But um, in, in this letter, like I think John's breaking that down. And, and I think John would challenge uh, that dichotomy or at least give a different perspective. Basically like, look, if, if your orthodoxy, your understanding of like what is true does not ultimately result in an orthopraxy, um, which is a practice of things uh, that's, that's loving. And, and even I would add, uh, I think the Wesley brothers to, to coined this, but the, the orthopathy, if it doesn't lead to um, actually empathy and, and a loving disposition towards others as well and loving practice, and then you may not have your orthodoxy right, or you may not actually understand truth that well. And if you're not loving that, basically, as John says, then what you have is not true. And so um, making sure that we understand the, the right dynamics in that equation in a way. But yeah. As you read this book, it should probably sting a little bit and convict you. I think we oftentimes talk about first John being all about love and it really is, but we initially imagine that it's going to make you feel warm and fuzzy, but actually this agape love of God is just as much about showing that love to others. And while our works don't save us, they are indications that we're indwelt by the Holy spirit and they can reassure our hearts of salvation before God. Yep. Uh, and then there's a, a warning kind of thrown in here uh, between the love sections around testing the spirits. And so um, there's people coming in, leading people astray. Um, and as we said, there's already kind of markers that um, some of this is, is Gnosticism, not Gnosticism, um, which once again, we've covered this a little bit on the podcast in the past, but uh, often involved this sort of detached understanding between how you live and sort of this inner knowledge of God or the divine. And so your body is sort of an afterthought. Um, what, so your actions probably don't matter as much as sort of having this inner knowledge or experience. And so um, John's dealing with this crowd uh, that um, both in how he's teaching about love and how to live, but, but um, he's continuing to encourage them to test these teachers. And, and if these teachers sound like the general voices of culture, that's saying, as Sarah already kind of pointed out, follow your own heart, whatever your truth is. Um, the, that's sort of the modern versions. Their versions would be like, have this, experience and and find this hidden knowledge um then we should be wary like that's what the culture teaches that's what the world teaches that's not what jesus was saying we, we, this is not an insider path to this sort of stuff it's the invitation to all we have to be ready and able to discern god's truth from the world's truth because those who speak from the world can be really easy to listen to mm -hmm. if we're not prepared what to discern what is truth. When we think about this idea of self-actualization or looking inside yourself or all these different things, I mean, it really is worldly talk for worldly people, but it's also very compelling talk if we are not regularly in the world and believing it and walking in it as truth. 
Yeah. And John, once again, it's pretty straightforward as he keeps going that if you don't love people, you don't love God. I mean, he said that basically about seven times in this letter, pretty much the exact same way in ways that aren't complicated sentences. I mean, you can do some interpretive gymnastics, but it's pretty straightforward in how he says it. And, um, and the same would be true from Paul. I mean, we saw this in Paul of like, well, you can be, I mean, you can have prophetic utterances, you can have all these tremendous works, but, but if it's not marked by love, what do you have? You you have noise and you have nothing as Paul would say, or you gain nothing. And, um, and it's, um, at times self-reflective, but also like, we should, we should test some of the, the, the voices that we hear from. And, um, I think sometimes there's groups that are incredibly unloving and, um, and, and they're also the groups that claim to, to be the most devoted to truth. And, um, we should be a little bit more, um, discerning of that, of the voices that we listen to and whether they're, they are marked, um, by love of brother and sister. And, um, and, and that's that much more dangerous when we do podcasts and all these other things and uh, ways that we are um, sometimes removed from people uh, that we listen to teaching from uh, not knowing if their marks actually lives are actually marked by any fruit of the spirit particularly around love of brother and sister one of the things within our english language that can be a hiccup at times is that we really have one word for love but if you were to read this in the greek you'd get a whole bunch of different words but one of the main focuses is agape love which um, is most often associated with God. And this idea of agape love requires sacrifice and it requires showing love to one another without asking for anything in return. And that includes affection or friendship. And this is the agape love that Christ showed us and we are to show others. And really it's impossible basically to do aside from the work of the Holy spirit within us. Yeah. And, and the good news in that he immediately gets into. So if this is really hard without the Holy spirit's work, but guess what? Like, there's victory still. Um, this is hard work, but there's victory. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a, a ongoing battle without a victor. The crisis is the victor though. Uh, and we get to enjoy the spoils that are played out in our obedience. Um, and, and John even goes like, well, here's how you do that by obeying his commandments. That's how we enjoy the spoils of Christ's victory. Um, mm-hmm. but he is the one who fought against sin and death. Yeah. We're overcomers because Christ overcame death for us. And then John sort of moves into, um, sort of talking about, God, the father's um, testimony about his son, that God's supernatural hand is upon this all. And um, he goes into this idea of threefold witness, which uh, I won't get into sort of the background of that, but um, that the baptism of Jesus, um, uh, the spirit's work and his crucifixion are all sort of the father's testimonies about Jesus. And in a lot of ways, God spoke and and moved in all those things. And uh, the father did. And so John's pointing out, look, if God is vouching for his son, like we already believe human testimonies about certain things. Like we have the creator of the universe vouching that his son did these things. And so we have that. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life through his son, as John would say here. And so um, he's kind of using sort of the, the evidence of testimony and then putting the creator of the universe's testimony upon Jesus to go, this is why we do this. Yeah. Uh, so Proverbs nine. I really like Proverbs nine. It's kind of easy to follow. You have this beginning part that talks about the way of wisdom and then the end part talks about the way of folly. And in the middle is a reminder that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much, um, in certain, in some ways, another sort of chiastic structure, uh, that Sarah kind of points out already that the center is around this. And just as a reminder, sometimes we hear fear and think afraid or, um, and there's certainly moments like when people interact with 
angels or messengers, they have those moments, but um, sometimes it's just understanding sort of the, the creator nature of God, the, the sort of all powerful being um, who created all things. It's sort of, uh, now that we've read through Job, it's sort of that Job moment of God going like, look, like, did you forget that I am the one who puts all the stars in the sky and only that, but makes all life, including your own. Like, and if that's our starting position, then when that being speaks to us, that sort of position that starts with fear, then we can have the wisdom and knowledge to understand it. So mm-hmm. uh, if the next sentence from the one who scares us that way, because it's so powerful and so all, all knowing, and then that same being goes, do not fear, then I have comfort there. Um, if there's something that has no power and then tells me not to fear, well, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't care about that. But if the all powerful one starts speaking, then, then that changes things. And I think that's where Proverbs is really after it's it's understanding like, look, like the beginning of all the things, like if you really want to know wisdom and what truth is and what knowledge is and understand what all things really are, like it has to start with acknowledging the one who even created all those things. Yeah. So next week, So we're going to move into Haggai next week. And I just encourage you as you read to think about how Haggai speaks to both the people in their present circumstances. And also it speaks to us in our present circumstances and think about that, especially around the Messiah. And then in the new Testament, I'd encourage you to ponder the correlation of John's emphasis on love in first John and his emphasis on truth in second and third John. Yeah. Uh, As we get into uh, kind of the fourth section of Isaiah, there's a few pretty famous coffee cup type verses or verses that get quoted a lot from this section. Um, but as you read them in their context, uh, think about whether the, the ways you've heard it used, or maybe even the ways that you, or, or certainly I have used them might actually be kind of out of the context that they're actually talking about. Uh, and then we, as we head into revelation, uh, it, it is helpful to have some understanding of how apocalyptic literature w- works. Um, yeah, I'll, as I have in the sermon series that we're doing right now in Revelation, um, there's a simple kind of definition that I used. And that's the, a story that uses uh, icons, images, and symbols to communicate hope for the day, like that day for the po- folks that are hearing this in their way. Um, so as you read it, try to think about some of the books we've read so far. Um, although we haven't gotten to Zechariah yet, which is a, a little bit of a bummer, the arrangement of of um the two-year Bible because John picks up on probably Zechariah more than any other book. Um, but he certainly picks up on Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the ways that they had used apocalyptic writing. So think back to some of those as you're reading, uh, you might need to create a few bookmarks maybe in those sections. Uh, but also some of the imagery from Genesis and Exodus that we, it's been so far, so long since we read those, but, um, John, uh, uses probably more old Testament than any other book in the new Testament. And so, um, now that we've read through most of it, as we're reading through John, and try to think as you're reading through going, is this in the old Testament somewhere? And if you have a book with a lot of cross references, it might be helpful. So um, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Thanks y'all.